Well, my blood, this is George G, and the time is right. Welcome to today's guest, strong and powerful Kamal Gupta. Kamal, are you ready to do this? Yes, I am. All right, welcome back. Kamal is a professional Thank you very gambler. Much for having me back. Yeah, I'm excited. Kamal is a professional gambler turned hedge fund manager who successfully beat the market an unprecedented number of months in a row. He is the author of Play It Right, the remarkable story of a gambler who beat the odds on Wall Street. And he is also a consummate negotiator and somebody who's helped hundreds of people to negotiate better deals for themselves. Kamal, welcome back. Tell us a little bit about your personal life, some more about your work and why you do what you do. Um, I mean, there is so much to talk about um, when it comes to my work, because I started out as a computer scientist, something, a business that I had no interest in, you know, so I quickly abandoned that to become a professional blackjack player. And, and then even though I thought after two years, the rest of my life was going to be spent playing blackjack in a strange turn of events, which is described in the opening chapter of Play It Right, I end up on Wall Street and I stay for something like 27 years. And in that time, you know, I suffer a great deal of abuse. I almost leave the industry, but then I come back because I can't let these people run me out of town. And But then eventually I compile what is possibly the finest track record in hedge fund history, as well as I was heavily involved in raising money for the largest hedge fund launch in history in 2018. It was known as Exodus Point Capital. Now, all this is detailed and played right. But there's one significant aspect of my life which has not been mentioned. In, or maybe there's only a passing reference to it in the book. Like maybe I devote a page or two to it. Um, it's about negotiating. And um, I don't quite know how it came to be, but over the last quarter century, I've negotiated on behalf of countless people while I stay behind the scenes. And more often than not, the vast majority of these dealings are individuals negotiating with very large and powerful companies. And you can think of the biggest companies in the world. We, you know, they're dealing with these large companies and it's a scary proposition going up against one individual going up against like a large, powerful company like Goldman Sachs or JP Morgan or whoever, right? And so how, how do you, it, the odds in, in the corporate world today are heavily tilted in favor of corporations and against individuals. So how do you, balance that playing field somewhat. And in my case, I do it because I've negotiated for a lot of people. I've seen a lot. So I, I help people negotiate by staying behind the scenes and holding their hand throughout the entire process such that the company on the other side hasn't, I mean, maybe now the secret will be out, but has never become aware of my, my involvement in their affairs. And my involvement is like needy, you know, because I know every nuance of the, I mean, you can't help someone negotiate without knowing every single detail of the situation. I mean, a negotiator is almost like a priest, right? You have to confess everything to them. Mm. Otherwise they can't help, you, you know? So, um, and I've done this for countless people for the last 25 years. And so now that plate right is out and released into the wild and I can't do any more work on that book because it's, it's, you know, it's been released in India and, and Canada and US and UK. Um, so I'm turning my focus on to writing a book about negotiating, which will be very different from the first book in, in that sense that it'll be more about a, more like a how-to, how a common man can negotiate, you know, in business and potentially in life. Because, I mean, 
negotiation, a negotiation is a battle. It's a fight against a powerful entity. So it's a conflict. In a sense, it's a conflict. A peace, relatively, you know, peaceful conflict in the sense that no weapons are being used other than words, but it is a conflict regardless. And so how do you deal with conflict in business and in personal life? That's what, so I will have like 20 or 25 rules that, I mean, uh, that I have always lived by and used to negotiate not only for myself, but for everyone else. And um, hopefully, I mean, that book is still in an, in a thought stage. I have some chapters written, but they need to be radically restructured. And who knows if the book will see the light of day or not. But I think, um, I think it's, what I would like to impress upon people is that negotiating is a very important skill. Like some people shy away from it because they just are afraid. Some people think it's beneath their, their dignity. And what they don't realize is negotiating is not only a great game, it truly is a great game. I mean, it's also for me, a good cause. Like what I, my, I always negotiate for David against Goliath. I never helped Goliath negotiate against David. Goliath versus Goliath, maybe, you know. David versus David, hardly ever. But 95% of my, or 99% of my negotiations is helping the little guy against a large corporation. I like it. So when you're negotiating in your interpersonal life, are you using your powers for, for, for good still? When you're having a conversation with, with uh, your wife, for example, come on. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I have rules about uh, how to deal with one's wife as well. Actually, I have just, this is a bit off topic, but since you brought up relationship, you know, and wife, I have two simple rules for how <laughs> I can be happy in life. The first is like when it comes to money, like, you know, if you have, if you don't have money, you have problems in life. But if you do have money, Use money to simplify your life, not to overcomplicate it. Like don't buy vacation homes and stuff like that. Just simplify your life and use money to get rid of hassles. Like something breaks down in the house. Use money to just fix it, you know. And the second and the far more important rule is make sure your wife is happy with you. Now you can't guarantee your wife's happiness because some people, you know, but you can guarantee that she's not unhappy with you because that's a function of your actions, you know. So like I recount the story in the book when we, when I get married and I'm in spring of 1995, I have a panic attack during the wedding, which only my wife knows because it's the first dance and I'm freaking out. Like, what am I doing? You know, I mean, I had once vowed never to marry a non-Indian and my wife was an Italian American. So um, I sort of flipped out in that moment and it was 1995, April of 1995. And she was like, really, I mean, she didn't show it, but at the time, can you imagine you've just gotten married and your husband is saying, I don't know if I can do this. I mean, and so that, I mean, she thought I was being a coward in that moment. But since then, what, 27 and change years have gone by and I've made sure to not give her a reason to call me a coward again. Well done. So okay. that's how I negotiate. You know? Those are powerful. Yeah, I love it. All right. So the powerful entity, David against Goliath, this most commonly shows up in probably a job interview. Yes. And um, uh, the majority of my, I mean, there are all sorts of negotiations that I've, I've performed, but the majority of them are an individual 
negotiate against a large corporation while interviewing for a job. And that's a, a situation virtually everyone in the world you know, encounters at some point in time in their life. And it doesn't matter whether you're 24 years old, you're like 60 years old, you know, and it doesn't matter which industry you work in, whether it's finance or technology or media or real estate or, or medicine even. I've negotiated all across various fields and, um, and it doesn't matter what the stakes are, whether you're negotiating for a small amount of money or a large amount of money, the techniques and the rules that I use stay the same. And in terms of dealing with the future employer, no matter what field and what the stakes and what the salaries and the, you know, whether it's four figures or seven figures or more, I mean, it doesn't matter. You are, there is a right way to negotiate. There's a wrong way to negotiate. And it's a game. And again, hate to use the cliched word, play it right, but you must play it right. And that's the only way um, you will be successful in a negotiation. But yes, you're right. It's about employers. Where do, uh, is there a common way that people screw it up? Do we think too far ahead? Are we thinking too narrowly? I mean, one of my chapters that I started writing, um, it's it's uh, probably going to be the first chapter because it's the most important rule. And the title of the chapter will be something along the lines of focus on the next move and only the next move. And the opening line of the sentence of the chapter will be something like, what if? And then that's a question, right, being posed, what if? And my statement in response to that question is that uh, even, I mean, this is a question virtually everyone that I've negotiated for poses at some point in time. And it forces me to sit the individual down and launch into my negotiating is the opposite of chess speech, which is that the biggest mistake people make in a negotiation is to think like it's like a chess game that you try to think two, three, four, five, six moves ahead, or maybe more. Whereas I firmly believe negotiating is the exact opposite of chess, where your entire objective is the next move and only the next move. And you cannot look even one move ahead or forget two or three. Um, and I'll go briefly into why. I mean, because chess is a finite game. It's on an eight by eight board um, where pieces can only move in, in a preordained manner. Like a bishop can only move diagonally, a rook only sideways, king only one, one square at a time, right? Whereas negotiating has no such rules. I mean, you don't know what, I mean, rather than trying to predict, like in chess, even though you don't know what your opponent is going to do, you know the range of possible moves he can do or he can make with certainty. There is no doubt in your mind exactly. There may be 20 possible moves, you know, maybe even 30. I mean, actually, you know, there are only 16 pieces. So they can only be, actually, they can be, each piece can be moved in many different ways. So whatever it's 20, 30, 40, whatever the maximum number of moves, you know what the moves are. In negotiating, you have no idea what the guy will, what the other side will, will do, when they will do it, how they will do it. They may not even respond. In chess, you have to respond within 30 or 40 seconds or whatever. There's a time limit on, on, on moves um, in a chess match. Here, there's no time limit. And, and a savvy negotiator can even invent his own you know, pieces and move them in ways that confound the opponent. Like one example of uh, a piece being invented out of thin air is sometimes when I negotiate for an individual, I'm sitting in the same room with them while they're on a speakerphone. And I'm listening to the conversation the, the, in real time and passing notes to the individual 
with their answers written on it. Hmm. Now think about it. If the other side had any idea that is like, you know, a consummated negotiator helping this guy negotiate with them. And it's amazing in 25 years of doing this, not one company has ever figured it out. Hmm. So I mean, how could they even fathom that the guy has real-time help, you know, uh, as they're negotiating? And, and one of the funniest things that happens is often these companies compliment the guy for being a, or the, or the, or the, or the woman. I mean, um, compliment the individual for being a great negotiator, which makes me laugh. You know? You're really um, good at this. Thank you. It's like, I really enjoy it. I mean, and I think, I believe if you enjoy something, you become good at it because you'll practice it. And, and I have to negotiate for others because how many opportunities am I going to have to negotiate for myself? Only, you know, I can negotiate every day for myself in terms of big things like job, car, houses, whatever. Right. So, so the way I keep busy is by helping other people do this. And, and by doing this over and over for 25 years, I have developed a well-defined you know, defined philosophy and a set of rules that I think you know, the common man can use and, and use in, if nothing, a job interviews. Or in, and, and you can even take it one step further because it's a conflict, so you can use it in conflict in life. You know, uh, it's a way to think about conflict resolution, right? How do you escalate a conflict? How, when do you de-escalate? How do you read the science? It's all about reading the other the science on the other side and understanding what their cards are, what they're trying to get from the situation, and then you can navigate it. But the biggest, the common mistake, coming back to your original question, that people make is they think too far ahead and and don't focus on the here and now. And it's like negotiating is all about being in the moment. What is the problem in front of you? Just deal with that. Don't think about tomorrow because it may never come. The guy, the guy might just go away and never come back. Right. Is there rules thinking about, I, I, I appreciate, I need to be thinking about my next move and not any more moves ahead than that. But should I have go into it? Go, should I enter the negotiation with a desired outcome? And yes. should I think about, do I want to appreciate that this entity, that the company wants probably something also? And should I be worried about that? You should. Actually, that's a great point because you should know what you want from the negotiations, like what your objective is. And in a nutshell, the objective is to get the most from the company that you can. Right? I mean, that's usually the objective. And the company's objective usually is to give you the least that they can. And that's the tension, right? So, I mean, and the objective of a negotiation is how do you convince the other side to abandon their stance and adopt yours? And I've been involved in numerous negotiations, my own, for instance, where me and the other side have started like this far apart, right? Um, and for some reason, after, I mean, after months of chipping away at it, I get them to move within 5% of where I started from, you know, and they've moved 95%. And sometimes they've caught on and they've like balked at the last minute saying, we can't do this. How did we meet you all the way at your point? I mean, I said, it's fine. I mean, it's, it's just that it's a, it's a process. You have to know, you have to know what you want that you have to know from any conflict, right? When you're fighting with your wife, I mean, if you want a divorce or you want to make up, the, the way you'll fight the fight is very different, you know? So the objective has to be clear. And by the way, at the same time, you should know what the objective, you can't know, but you try to figure out 
what their objective is as well. Because without placing yourself in their shoes, you can't outwit them. And negotiating, I mean, even with the wife, it's a game of outwitting the other person. I mean, hopefully my wife will not see this interview. <laughs> but it is, it, it is like a, a poker game where you have in you have insufficient evidence, right? You know the cards you have, but you have no idea what, and you know what you want from the situation and what you're willing to concede or what you're willing to accept. But you have no idea what cards the other side holds and what they may or may not accept. And negotiating is this dance where you figure out, you know, how do you get the most from a situation, you know? And, and ideally, a negotiation should conclude happily. So there is also... Uh, an additional task is to create the illusion of the other side having one, even though victory is yours. So the final chapter of this book, if it comes to pass, will be no victory lap. Because don't ever take a victory lap, even if you won. Make the other side feel like they've won. Because especially in an employment situation, do you really want to vanquish an opponent who's going to be your boss? No. Definitely not a good idea. <laughs> so, so ideally, you want them to feel empowered. So almost all my negotiations, no matter how great they've turned out, end with a grudging acceptance. Okay, fine. I'll just accept. You know, even though I've raked them over the coals, you know, you know what? You win. You know, I'll accept. You know, you're, you're right. <laughs> but before that, we've had a brutal fight. I love but the it. fight ends with, you know what you win. I'll accept your final offer. <laughs> I think that's awesome. I think that uh, that there needs to be a section on on how to teach our politicians, our elected officials, how to not simply try to win at all costs, Kamal, and then we need to airdrop those in uh, Washington, D.C. and hope that one or two of them actually read it. Well, there is a lot to say there i mean <laughs> with politicians and the the problem with politicians are they cannot calibrate the conflict like it's in negotiating it's very important to calibrate the conflict right like when to raise the temperature of the fight when to lower it if you think about american politics and i've been in this country for 30 some years and it was not like this when i came here in the 80s um the temperature of the conflict has steadily gone up Hmm. for the past 10, 20 years, you know, to the point that it's reaching boiling point. And there's tremendous talk about um, civil war in this country. But I really believe that's the wrong fight in America. I mean, if you want, I can briefly talk about the real fight in America. That that should unite the whole country. And then no one ever talks about. Yes. And I, actually, I wrote a three-part essay about this which is on um, my agent's website. It's called therightsfactory.com. The right and I think you can find the, the essay on there. But the gist of the essay, the first part is called The Real Fight in America. Like, what is the real fight? It's not right versus the left, the coasts versus the heartland, north versus the south, Trumpers versus the never-Trumpers, Democrats. Those are all the wrong fights. There's only one fight in, the, in this country that is worth talking about, which has been quietly raging for the last, especially for 25, 27 years, starting in the mid nineties. It's the war that corporations have been quietly waging upon the population of this country. You know, um, a simple statistic, in 1996, there were 8,000 publicly listed company, companies in America. Today, there are 4,000. It's purely a result of, you know, consolidation and how many 
options for cable TV you have in, in your town? How many airlines are there servicing any market? And number of airlines is, you know, I mean, there is no competition left. And, and this f- artificial fight of left versus right, and I mean, the real fight is 99.9% versus the 0.1%, corporations versus individuals. And that's why I negotiate for individuals because it's a David versus Goliath fight. And I feel like corporations have too much power. And that fight is the one, I mean, it should unite everyone, you know, from the West Coast to the East Coast to the heartland. I mean, if you think about the major problems that face America today, whether it's the polarization, opioid crisis, or just the two sides being at each other's throats and, you know, um, the lack of safety net, you know, I mean, all the, a lot of the social issues, they can, a lot of them can be traced to increased corporate power. Like, and not just slightly increased, but massively increased corporate power. Like, for instance, Mitch Romney said this, corporations are people too, my friend. Mm-hmm. Okay, well, if that is the case, then America has the largest incarceration rate of any country in the world. How come we never see any corporation or a CEO being jeered for their crimes? And you can't say there aren't any crimes because Boeing is a perfect example of a company where in 737 Max, they killed hundreds of people, right? And they lied about it. And yet the CEO just walked away with $62 million. Right. I mean, so that is why I negotiate. And that is the, the fight that I think should unite the country. But the problem is nobody will ever talk about it because the media also is corporate owned. And there is, I mean, obviously not this broadcast, but, you know, mainstream media is, is owned by corporations. Why would they talk about the pernicious influence corporations have or have had for the last, you know, 27 years? And, and, this is a little more technical, but you know, I all this starts in the mid '90s for a very good reason for a specific law that gets passed. You know, like this whole idea of outsourcing. Why did it ever happen? Why did every factory move to to China and every call center to India? There is a very good reason for it. It's all about corporate profits, and when profits rule the day, um, you know, people are just fodder. That's why we need to advocate for ourselves, position ourselves for success. Which is why, I mean, I really believe it's a battle. When I, whenever I go up against a large corporation, I mean, uh, I mean, to put it mildly, I don't really have any mercy on them because mm-hmm. I feel like they've taken advantage of so many people so many times. If I can strike us, it's like me dealing with the casinos, right? When I was playing blackjack, it was they rip off so many customers, right? I mean, the odds are skewed this way. People don't know what they're doing and they just, you know, give so much money. I mean, the entire edifice is standing because of people lose so much money. And I know I'm not going to change the, the casino industry, but I can chip away at it a little bit, you know. Same thing here. I'm not going to change corporate America, but I'm going to do my small part in, you know, negotiating against it, if nothing else. I mean, you know, and if I do manage to produce this book, hopefully it can teach the average person that, you know, it is possible to take on a large corporation and when, when you're trying to interview with them for a job, you don't need to be timid. Corporations are not charitable institutions. They're hiring you because they need you and they need you because they think you can increase their profits. Otherwise, how, why would they negotiate with you? Hmm. Why are they even talking to you? I mean, and this is the part that most people don't realize that they might need you just as much, if not more so than you need them. So that would give, should give people more courage to deal with. And I do have, will have a rule called have courage because without courage, there is no shot of winning in this battle. I mean, any battle requires courage. Yeah.
So, I mean, so this is this whole real fight in America goes hand in hand with my um, the reasons why I negotiate, you know, for David against Goliath, because I'm trying to level the playing field just a little bit, you know, and, and I've been quite successful at it. So I figured, why not see if I can share that with the world? Makes sense. I love it. I look forward to it. I appreciate it. Fingers crossed. Yeah, I appreciate you coming back on. Where can people learn more about you? How can they engage? Where can they pick up a copy of the first book, Play It Right? And uh, give us a timeline for when you think you might start writing. Come on. Well, I've, I have, um, <clears throat> picking from the beginning, people can learn more about me at my website, Kamal Gupta Writes. Kamal Gupta Writes, as in W-R-I-T-E-S.com. Uh, the book Plate Right is available everywhere in the English-speaking world. You know, Amazon, Barnes and Noble. You know, there's an audio book narrated by a guy with a fantastic voice. Um, he is a an Canadian gentleman of Iraqi descent, reading a book written by an Indian guy in America. You know, I mean, it's just like it's the United Nations in there. You know. But he has a great voice, so you can listen on Audible. You know, you can buy the book. There's a hardcover. There's a. I strongly recommend the hardcover because it's a much more pleasant reading experience. Uh, there's also an ebook for those who want to read it. So it's you can. I mean, Amazon is the easiest place to get the book, but it's available everywhere. And as far as book two goes, I'm not really sure. So I'm working with my agent these days to sort of formulate what the book will look like, and. Um, you know, if it does come to pass, it's at least a year, year and a half away. Going so through, it, gone through a negotiation. Part, but earliest will be 20, 2024, would be the earliest. Are you negotiating with your agent right now? Come on. Good luck to uh, that person. Well, it's, uh, you know, uh, getting an agent is so difficult in this publishing world. I mean, if you if you have not been published before, like I was, you know, a few years ago, the odds against getting an agent are a thousand to one. And but this is a long another long story, but I did get a very famous agent right off the bat that I had to buy her. I mean, she represented presidents, you know, she counted pre- ex-presidents as her, client, as her clients. And yet I had to get rid of her because her vision for the book was not what I wanted. Mm-hmm. And then I was agentless for six months and then I found the perfect agent who is my agent from now to eternity. I love it. So. Excellent. Well, if you enjoyed as much as I did, show Kamal your appreciation and share today's show with a friend who also appreciates good ideas. Go to KamalGuptaWrites.com. It's K-A-M-A-L-G-U-P-T-A-W-R-I-T-E-S.com. Check out everything that he's working on. Pick up a copy of Play It Right in whatever form you like. Pick up the audio version, the ebook, or the hardcover and learn about his incredible story. Thanks again, Kamal. Thank you very much. And until next time, remember... Do your part by doing your best.